Good morning, all, or good evening if you're listening to this at night. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Uh, this morning we're going to tackle a couple things. I have a couple questions I want to answer, and I've been getting a lot of questions specifically about Kilobrachi species or Kylobrachis. I say Kilo, I've had, it seems like every name I pronounce, I somebody comes on and tells me I should be saying it a different way. It just I try to anticipate the other pronunciations and get them in there. So we'll be talking about those for the majority of this one. But uh, to, just to touch base back to what we talked about last week, again, that was incredibly, I felt it was a very negative, unfortunately, podcast, but I do feel like it was something I had to do. And since posting it, I've gotten emails and messages from folks basically talking about how sick they are of the drama. And again, I, and one of the things that came out, and I forgot to mention this, is you get it in any type of hobby community, whether it be reptiles, snakes. Uh, my gosh, I've been on Transformers threads where people are arguing about which the better toy is, which is one of the funniest things you'll ever see in your life, or which is the better character. Um, obviously, metal, when you get into metal, there's the whole argument about is this metal, is this not metal, this band's a sellout, whatever. So it, it honestly follows any hobby. It just bothers me because it seems like ours lately has been particularly rampant and nasty. And I had quite a few people, you know, contact me saying they have stepped away from the social scene as far as tarantulas are concerned. And I find that kind of sad because I think that's one of the funnest things we have to offer. I know just been doing the Tom's Big Spiders thing, I get to, unfortunately, I don't get as much time to kind of have the fun type of interactions I used to have with people because I'm busy answering a lot of emails and scrambling to keep caught up with things. But I do enjoy touching base with people from other countries that share the same passion as me or even people from, you know, the same country. It's just there's so much to be had in the community. And to have it ruined or have people feel like there's no place for them here or walk away because they're sick of it is just sad to me. So, again, I had we're up to six people now contacting me asking if part or all that was about them. And uh, I'm not getting into that. It's This wasn't about bashing people or calling people out. That's that's not my job. That's not what I do. It's not what I want to do. But if, if you saw something in there or heard something in there that was familiar to you or thought it was, you know, it could allude to you, then perhaps just tone things down a bit. Just step away from the drama. It's, it's just ridiculous and juvenile and it does nobody any benefit. So thanks to all who commented on it. This one got shared quite a bit. I was kind I kind of thought this was going to be one of my ones that didn't get a lot of plays because people were like, oh, I really don't want to hear about it. But it really got passed around, and I appreciate it because I really was hoping a lot of people would hear this and just try to quell some of this garbage that's going around. If you find a group and they're a good group of people and you get somebody in there that's a bad seed and it's trying to stir things up, either ask them to stop or ask them to leave. Seriously, we, we don't need it. And just keep in mind when you hear about the hobby infighting that there are two sides to every story. And a lot of times when there's an argument, you know, both people are at fault, nobody's at fault, it's a misunderstanding, wherever it may be, don't get sucked into that. It's not That's not what this whole hobby is about. So moving on ahead, one of the things I wanted to comment on was a little while back somebody asked on one of my other things what my thought was on using leaf litter. Um, this was Kevin... Chrysac. Oh, Kevin, I'm so sorry. I probably just butchered your name. Chrysac or Chrysac. Hopefully I got it right. But ask what, any thoughts on use of sterilized leaf litter for teas. And yes, not only have I thoughts, but I actually ordered some sterilized leaf litter because I do want to start playing a little bit more. Mostly I want to start with my centipedes and I want to do some natural enclosures with some of the uh, the maintenance bugs. And they like to have something you know to hide beneath. I have a colony of white dwarf isopods I've kept going for a while now and I like they like when you put leaf litter down they hide underneath it neat stuff 
So yes, I'm thinking about doing it with some of the tarantulas as well, and that'll kind of lead into some of my thoughts on chelobrachias and specifically keeping the burrowing species or the fossorial species, because I, I do think that it can be used. Not only does it look pretty and natural, but I do think there are benefits as far as if you're trying to use cleaner insects, giving them a place to kind of high be so they're not right up on the surface, because I'm used to using the old dirt maybe some sphagnum moss, and that's about it. But the leaf litter gives it a more natural appearance. I know with speech, with some of the scorpions and the centipedes, they can also hide beneath it, so it kind of has a dual use as far as that's concerned. So, yes, Kevin, I'm definitely not only considering it, I've got some hopefully coming in Monday, and I'll be doing some experimenting with it, and if I like it, I'll start doing that more of my tanks. And that's something I'm kind of moving ahead. I think it's a I've reached a stage in the hobby where my collection won't be growing much larger than this. I'll be getting new things in, obviously, and that's all part of it, but I am slowing down a little bit, and I'll be looking to eventually start moving some of the doubles if I can let go of my attachment to them so I can make room for more, but one of the things I have been spending a lot of time doing is upgrading my enclosures to things that are a bit more attractive and aesthetically pleasing. When I first got into the hobby, I was big into the budget enclosures only because, well, they're cheap, and that leaves you more money to actually buy the spiders. And the fact that um, there's a lot of them are stackable, they're made in all kinds of, you know, the sterilites, it's like somebody's there just specifically making things that are perfect for, you know, juvenile slings and adults and whatnot. So it makes it very easy when you find an enclosure. Like right now I use a sterilite enclosure, I think it's 15 quarts, that is perfect for medium size. It's about the same size as the Exoterra breeder boxes. So it's like perfect for your medium sized tarantulas. And my big thing is it's not so much the fact that I'm saving money, because I don't mind, and I've never minded shelling out some decent money for a nice cage, it's finding something that's appropriate. That's where I start off, and I think that's sometimes where I get caught up using the sterilite stuff, because if I have, say, a moisture-dependent species, say I have my antinus, and I want to keep part of that moist, those sterilite containers can be easily vented across, you know, you add your cross-ventilation, you can vent them as much as you need to make sure that you don't, you know, lose all your moisture out of the enclosure, but also get good airflow. And some of the stuff that they market online isn't meant for tarantulas, so it doesn't have that cross-ventilation that I like, or it has, you know, screen top that you got to change, or some of the acrylic ones, they don't have as much ventilation as I'd personally like. They have a couple vents on each side, but not all of them. There's just little things I look at. And when I set up an enclosure, I'm looking for what is going to allow me to make the microclimate I need for this tarantula and most easily. I've heard folks, you know, say, well, bottom line, you just need to add more water more often. Well, that's great, but why cause yourself more work? If, especially if you have a larger collection, when winter time comes and those furnaces kick in and the water is evaporating rapidly, that's a lot of work when you have, you know, 50, 60, 75, 100 even, or in my case, I think I'm up to about 160 tarantulas that you have to, a lot of them you have to keep moist. That's, that's tricky. That's a tricky endeavor, and that's something that could easily leave a keeper feeling overwhelmed and behind. So if you find a certain type of enclosure that's easy to ventilate, it keeps the moisture in while allowing airflow. It might not be the prettiest one, but it ends up being the best for the spider. So that's usually where I start off, and that's sometimes where I get in little debates online where people are like, I don't understand why you have that beautiful spider and that crappy enclosure. Well, A, we don't get a lot of visitors here, so I'm not showing these guys off all that much. I guess if I had a company coming over and was entertaining all the time, or if I had maybe a bigger house and a bigger room for it, then maybe I'd get into more of that. But we don't get a lot of visitors, so it's me. It's basically Billy and I and the kids that get to see them for the most part, and every once in a while a visitor comes over and I'll break a couple out. So that's not really a concern for me. So then i got to look at what's what's going to work for the spider, and a lot of times it's the sterile. But anyway, to get back to my point, 
I'm starting to move away from the Sterilite. So I found these nice uh, things made. They're Amazon. They're these clear hinged containers. And one I feature one in one of my newest videos. And I love the way they look for the smaller species. And juveniles are just gorgeous. They're acrylic. They're clear. And they look really, really nice. So I've been switching a lot of those out. Also, I've been getting more of the Exoterra Nanos. I moved away from those a while back because of the adjustments you have to make to the screens and some of the stuff. It was just, I wasn't into them at the time. But for 40 I think I'm getting them for about $42 on Amazon. You can get it cheaper from Petco even, and they just look nice and they're great for the medium size boreals. So I am starting to upgrade. I just contacted Lorex Plastics. Of course, their response, <laughs> still having a hard time getting a hold of them when I shoot emails. It's just easier for me to fire off an email than call, and I usually have to shoot one or two, to, uh, a couple to get a hold of them. But I'm starting to look at some other types of enclosures that I may start working on and using in here. So, And then there's always the fact that eventually I'd like to clean my garage out and start making my own. So I am adjusting and moving away from some of the, you know, Sterilite stuff, I still think they're perfect for slings, for juveniles, and for some of the adults. I mean, I'm not going to go completely away from but I am, as a hobbyist, starting to gravitate more toward that. And again, I'm looking at doing some of the, you know, bioactive enclosures in the future. I'll pick a couple species, perhaps my blondies or something, to go with those on. So that led me to starting to look at more, you know aesthetically pleasing decorations including the leaf litter and things of that nature so yes that's a consideration of mine yes i'm going to start doing more with them and hopefully it'll you know people will be able to see it in my videos and it'll be appreciated so now on to kilo brocky species i've gotten quite a few people asking me about these lately and i had somebody asking recently on a youtube video why I don't have a Fimbriatus yet. I actually have two. They are juveniles. Um, why I didn't get one to begin with is when I first got into the hobby and was looking at tarantulas, I saw one up on Jamie's site and was immediately like, this thing looks amazing. But then I read the descriptions of it and it was, you know, you had to keep it moist. It was considered to be a defensive, a defensive old world tarantula. So I shied away from it for a while. It was kind of like the HMAC where I finally, my experience level had caught up to, I should be able to easily manage one of these, but they'd been off my radar for a while. So I finally picked some up. I got some from Tanya at Fear Not and loving the little guys. They're starting to show their little abdominal patterns now. They're just gorgeous. My first Kilo Brocky was Kilo Brocky Guangziensis, and I picked up, I believe it was a juvenile female. It was about two and a half, three inches long from Jamie's Tarantulas, and it was just, I was starting to get into the old world fossorial species, and something about, I, I honestly, I like the name of it, and if it comes, I, I, it was just something I hadn't heard of before, and I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, it's related to the Fimbriatus and the Discalus, and it just looked cool, so I picked one of these up, and it's it's become one of my favorites. It's just, I love this girl. She's actually rather laid back, but I think what people need to realize with the Kilo Brocky species, and this is a lot of newcomers, I just had a, somebody that was on my Best Beginner Species video on YouTube, and they're like, oh... Thanks so much for this list. This is awesome. I've decided to get a discalist because they look nice. And I, I had to stop and kind of do my, oh, that's a great species. I got one of those. You know, here's a video on it. Uh, just know they are fossorial. You won't see them a lot. And if you keep them in a way that you'll see them a lot, they're not going to be particularly happy about it. And they're like, yep, I don't care. So somehow these guys are starting to, you know, catch people's eye, which is great. There's a, a lot of gorgeous species out there. But with the uh, Kilobrachys guangziensis, she basically, I set her up originally in something that was about a gallon, a gallon and a half with about maybe six inches of moist substrate. And that's a trick. These are guys that you're going to keep moist. There are some species, and I'm learning as I keep more and more tarantulas and experiment a bit more with the ones that, there's, I think there's ones that are moisture dependent, meaning you really need to keep, you know, 
the moisture levels up in there or you're going to have a spider that's going to experience molt and possibly health problems. And then I think there's ones that have been considered moisture dependent for years but are actually quite hardy and don't have the moisture requirements. And I always point to for Myctopus, I got in a back and forth on arachnoboards a few years back because I had kept them for a while. And somebody's like, yeah, I want to keep for Myctopus, but you need to keep them moist. And I just, that scares me off. And I kind of came on and said, oh, no, my, in my opinion that you don't need to keep them moist at all. I mean, as slings, yes, but as they put on size, I keep them bone dry, almost like a G. rosea with a water dish. And they do perfectly fine. And some people jumped on like, oh, you're going to die. You know, you're going to lose them there. I wouldn't recommend that. And now it seems like the majority of people out there keep them the same way. So a lot of times, and I get the apprehension when somebody wants to switch things up. I had somebody contact me not that long back about wanting to keep the, um, what was it, the uh, Levitum, the C. Levitum. And they were like, yeah, I'm going to keep it dry because I really don't know how to keep the things moist. And I was like, oh, that's that's one of those species you don't want to play around with. They, They require moisture. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is this going to be one of those ones years down the road that we figure out really didn't need the moisture? I don't know. But Kilobrachy species do seem to appreciate the moisture. This is a species that if you put, and this is the test you can do if you ever, you know, don't believe they want moisture, take some substrate, put it in there, and put a little hole in the corner, pour some water down, let it set so the bottom is nice and moist. Some of the species will immediately burrow to get down to that moist substrate. And these were ones that when I rehoused, I had part of it, I had basically a mixture of dry and moist substrate. One side was moist, one side was dry. And both of them immediately went for the moist corner and dug their burrows in there. So that seems to indicate to me, in the very least, they like it a little moist. So, so this is one of the genera of tarantula that would consider moisture dependent. I keep all of my moist at all times. You know, you can let part of it dry out. And I think that's something that gets lost is people, and I remember agonizing over this, like, oh my gosh, the substrate's drying out. All you need, they basically in the wild will use dens. And it could be bone dry outside, but if they dig deep enough, they're going to find moist dirt beneath. And that's what they, that's how they kind of regulate what they need. So in our homes, the top can be dry. You do not need swampy enclosures. The top can remain dry. I, I tell people the way I moisten is you put a hole in the side, pour some water down the side so it trickles down between the enclosure and the dirt and kind of settles in the bottom. So you keep those moist levels dry. When I add moisture to my moisture dependent species, you know, tanks, what I look for is that band of dry substrate at the top. You'll see it. It'll be a little lighter, obviously, than the moisture stuff on the bottom. When that gets low to the point where I think it's starting to, you know, encroach upon their burrow and they're getting some dry substrate down there, then I'll go ahead and add some water to it. And I have that big watering bottle I've used for years. You just basically tilt the enclosure, sprinkle it down the side. Sometimes if it's just puddling on the top, what you can do is carefully, if you're using a, a plastic enclosure that has a little flexibility, you can grab both ends of the sides, opposite sides and just pull them apart a little bit so it makes a little track for that water to go down. Let it go right down to the bottom. You don't need to keep the top isn't what you want to really worry about. And I think that's something that some people get confused about. We're not so much worried about the top being moist because that'll evaporate very, very quickly. If you, This is why a lot of people are against or don't find that spraying is particularly useful as far as maintaining moisture because I can spray the snot out of the top of one of my enclosures. But basically what I'm going to get is about a quarter inch of moist substrate in the top, which will probably be dry by the morning. So that's why we want to go down the sides. So when working with Kilobrachis, you do want to give them enough depth to the enclosure to allow them to dig because this is a fossorial. These are fossorial species. They do want to dig. They make burrows. They will web. And I think there's uh, some. There are some people out there who want to see them more. And we did the whole thing about you know how to keep burrowing species and why I'm not quite a fan of keeping them in a way that prevents them from burrowing. But I have had people contact me 
especially with the Kilo Rocky saying, hey, you know, I just put mine in a shallow container and put some anchor points in there and they just web the heck out of it. And that's one of the ways these species will adapt. If they're in an area or in an enclosure that does not permit them to burrow, you will get lots of webbing. Um, some of them you will get lots of webbing regardless. So, for example, my Fimbriatus, both of their enclosures, they have dug deep burrows. They're about, probably, one of them's about two and a half inches, one of them's about two inches, I think. And both of them have dug deep burrows right down the side of the enclosure, a lot of tunnels below, you know, pretty extensive burrows into the moist part. But they also went on the surface and webbed up the enclosures to the point where it's webbed right up to the top of the enclosure so when I go to take it off I have to tear some webbing which is uh, it's beautiful webbing but again be careful when you're opening enclosures like that because if the spider is up top when you pull it it's like ripping somebody ripping the roof off your house it's going to cause you some stress you're going to freak out a bit and they do the same thing so that might be where you get a threat posture so my Fimbriatus they are webbing up quite a bit. Guangziensis in its original enclosure, what ended up happening is it was starting, I, I don't see them all that much or see her all that much. And that's one of the things people need to realize with some of these pretty spiders that are burrowing. You're not going to see them all that often. When you do, it's amazing. It's awesome. And I think it makes it all worthwhile. But if kept correctly, you're not going to be seeing them out and about much. So, what you do see is the with the Guangziensis, what she did was as she started growing out of her enclosure, I hadn't gotten a good shot of her. So she was probably, she was in an enclosure and she was ready for a rehousing, but it took me a little while to actually catch her out and go, ooh, she's put on some size, got to get her out of here. But what they will do is when the dirt feels too shallow, then they go up and start webbing above. So that was my cue that it was time for her to go. And it was a shame because she did some beautiful webbing, but basically... You figure if you're a, you got a spider in say six inches of substrate and they outgrow their enclosure to the point where the spider's five inches, that's not particularly deep for them. So they start adding to the depth of their burrow by adding webbing up top. So they add a few inches of webbing. So that's a way you can kind of have the best of both worlds where they get to dig, they can hide in their burrow, but you get to see some of that webbing. When I moved my Guangziensis, I put her in an enclosure that was about probably about five gallons or so and put a good eight inches of substrate in there. Water dish, of course, and moist substrate. And she dug one burrow going right down the side, eventually dug another entrance. So she's got two entrances to the burrow and she stays out of sight the majority of the time. I just caught her out the other day. Just part of her out, her legs were out. She was hungry. She had molted. And that's your best time to catch them is if you go at night and basically shine a flashlight in their containers, you can usually catch their legs out. And speaking of legs, I have the species Electric Blues, who just, their legs are amazing. And I wonder, because there are species out there of bugs that will lure, uh, or insects that will lure other ones in by using color. So I wonder if part of the how they hunt is they leave those Electric Blue legs outside so that they catch the light they look gorgeous i wonder if that's something that attracts prey it was just something i thought about because i've noticed both of them make a point of leaving those gorgeous legs out which is great when you're trying to take a picture although every time the flash goes i usually bolt before i can get a good shot of them so they will also hang out with their legs out and the species electric blue so far both burrowed um, both burrowed quite a bit, quite extensively, just like the other species of Chelobrachis I have. However, not as much webbing. They got some webbing up top, but not so much. We'll see what happens when they start putting on size, though. Again, like the Guangziensis, once that got a little shallow and they got a little bigger, she did start webbing up top, so we'll see if we do the same thing. But for somebody looking for one that's going to do some gorgeous webbing, Fimbriatus, 
seems to be the one that really does the most webbing. And this is one that I get approached by several, I've been approached by many people or seen videos of many people that keep them on a bit shallower substrate and allow them to do their webbing thing. Again, with those old world species, if you don't give them enough depth, that does put you in a situation that when you rip the top off of that enclosure, especially if they've webbed right to it, you've just disturbed their burrow. They're not becoming aggressive. They are defensive. They, they are assuming you have just ripped the roof off their house. You must be an enemy, and they are going to fight you. So just keep that in mind. And the Kilobrachi species are very fast. I'm very fortunate in that I haven't had many issues with mine, although my Fimbriatus almost bolted on me the other day. She had two entrances, or I'm saying she, I'm not sure yet, but two entrances to her burrow, and she came out, I caught her out. She went in one, but then shot back out the other one and kind of looped it. It was kind of funny. But they are very, very quick. And as old world species, it's important to keep in mind that the venom is pretty nasty, so you don't want to get bitten by one of these guys. So here are the, the species that I currently keep, again, were Discolus, Fimbriatus, Guangxiensis, and species Electric Blue. They are gorgeous. They have the lithe build to them, very thin, you know, a velvety appearance to them. One of the things that surprised me, and it makes me wonder because I haven't heard it described this way before, my Guangxiensis, its overall coloration is what many people would consider a drab brown. I actually just love the looks of her, so I don't care if she's brown. But when you get her under light, there is a blue iridescence that is quite striking. So something to think about for anybody looking at Guangxiansis. They do have, when you get them under the light, not as much as a species electric blue. Now the blue on that is just awe-inspiring. It's just an amazingly gorgeous color. Obviously, I would describe it as probably electric blue, if you haven't seen them before. That, the, the moniker definitely fits. But the Guangxiansis does have some of that coloration. And then the Fimbriatus obviously has a beautiful coloration, that abdominal pattern with the, the dark blue black markings on it is just fantastic to look at and the discless again i had the discless blue that's one of those ones that does have a bluish overall sheen to it but you have to get it under a light if you don't see it it almost looks a smoky gray if you don't put a light on but as soon as you put the light on you definitely see those blue highlights and i've taken several pictures if you look on uh, i might have one on instagram but i know i caught them out and about when we did the rehousing for them and just a gorgeous species so again when i get mine as slings they're going to burrow so it's going to be moist substrate i've used the amac box enclosures for a couple of them i've also used deli cups the i, I think i had the 12 ounce, the, the ones not the little teeny ones but the bigger ones i think i had one of my discless in those the vials work good when they're super small they'll bury they'll basically burrow right down make a little hole in the vial do a little webbing up top and then graduate to the amac boxes or 16 ounce 32 ounce deli container i would go more 32 ounce because you're going to give them some room to dig, and that will give you some time to have them grow. But once they hit about three inches or so, something around a gallon size is good for a juvenile. Again, several inches of substrate. I usually try to, for the juveniles, I try to do like four or five or so. Moist substrate, definitely a water dish at that point. And this is a species I've caught drinking. And when you feed them, if they start webbing up the entire enclosure, again, the webbing is waterproof, so dumping a little water or sprinkling some water on the webbing, usually what they'll do is they'll go out and drink right from that, which is very, very convenient. And then as adults, my discless is in the extra large 
Critter Keeper right now. My Guangziensis is in something similarly sized. So something around five, six gallons or so would probably suffice. Ten gallons would definitely work. You're going to give them a little bit extra room. They are um, decent sized spiders. I would say my female Guangziensis is probably pushing six inches now. And she's when she comes out, she's pretty good size, but she I don't think I'm going to have to rehouse her again. Now, one thing I do want to bring up is, and this is something I've been giving a lot of thought to, a lot of times with the tarantulas, we talk about they don't have to be cleaned all that much. And I believe in most cases, especially with dry species or terrestrials, that's, that's absolutely true. You put some dirt in there, you spot clean. I use a spoon or tongs to pull out any boluses. If I get any mold, I scoop it out, move the water dish around. You know, that's a good trick is instead of keeping the water dish in the same quarter, which allows it to build moisture underneath it, sometimes mold, move the water dish around the enclosure so it's not always in the same spot. And that's pretty much it. With the arboreals, you're going to have to clean the poo off the sides because they love the poo can and everything. But all in all, they're very clean animals and they don't need to be cleaned that often. And I've had a lot of folks basically tell me that, you know, they get right into the hobby and like, I don't know why my spider won't settle down. I, I just cleaned her thing, her cage this month, cleaned out all the substrate like I do every month. And I have to go, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't need to clean them out monthly. They're, they're very clean overall. However, one of the things I've been giving a lot of thought to, because I've had a couple over the years, mysterious deaths of my fossorial species where they've just been doing fine eating and then they were dead. In one case, they were hanging around the water dish. There was no mites involved. None of the nematodes, the boogeyman of the hobby. But after talking to some other hobbyists about them, one of the things that's starting to come out that we, we don't give enough, you know, we don't look at enough is the possibility of bacterial infections with tarantulas. It's something because, again, we've covered ad nauseum the fact that they are not very expressive. And generally speaking, by the time you know that your tarantula is sick, it's probably already too late in many instances, with the exception of like dehydration, which is something that can be easily fixed. They, when they get sick, it's not like we know. It's not like our dogs start acting lethargic or people are sniffling, whatever it may be. But I've been given a lot of thought about the possibility of bacterial infections. When I look back, some of the more mysterious deaths I've had were with species that were fossorial and that were moisture dependent. So I'm constantly adding water to, say, a, you know, we'll go five gallon bucket of dirt with decent airflow, but not fantastic airflow. And as much as I try to clean boluses out, as much as I try to take care of any issues, you know, any debris I may find, I probably miss stuff, which could definitely cultivate bacteria. So I think under most circumstances, especially if you're using cleaner, cleaner insects and cleaner crews, that would greatly help reduce any, you know, potential undiscovered boluses attracting bacteria or whatnot. But I do think with fossorial species, there is more of a propensity for these conditions to be met where you end up with a lot of bacteria that you would not necessarily notice. Your spider may be acting completely fine. Who knows? Something might have crawled down the burrow and died and kind of seeped out. Next thing you know, you've got bacteria. I think that is something we need to look at more. And I know with my guys, I'm starting to, you know, I was talking to Billy the other day and I'm like, I have some of these guys that have been in there, like my Guangziansis, I think I rehoused about two years ago and she's been in the same dirt for quite some time and I constantly add water in. I'm starting to think, you know what, it might be time to change her out. And so going ahead, something I'd be curious to hear from people about, I'm not advocating that we need to change things all the time and that, you know, right, every three, four months, make sure you change your your substrate. However, I am starting to think that for my fossorial species, especially my adults, where you know that's going to be their last enclosure. And a lot of people with these fossorial species, they're old worlds. They're the ones you dread rehousing because you have to dig them out. 
And I think a lot of us are just like happy to get them in their adult enclosures where they will live the rest of their lives as a dog shakes off in the background. But I'm starting to look at it differently. Like, for example, my H, I have an H gigas female that was in an enclosure that she'd been in for about a year and a half. And I was just looking at it. She has all her tunnels and everything. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just switch that out. So I took her out. I rehoused her. I got her on a cocoa fiber sand and, uh, I had a little benzonite clay, benz, I think benzonite, benzonite, I probably mispronounced that clay that I added to it as well. Moist substrate, packed it down, put her back in it. Sure, she was uprooted for a little bit, but she immediately got to burrowing, made a new burrow, and she's fine now, and now I know she's on clean substrate. So one of the things I'm looking at moving ahead, personally my own collection, is I'm going to start changing my substrate and cleaning my cages a lot more than I did. And I mean beyond the normal spot cleaning or taking a paper towel to wipe some poo off the sides, I'm going to be spending a lot more time, unfortunately, uprooting the spider. And I know there's probably people out there going, oh, that sounds unnecessary. But think about it. Think about even if you've got cleaner insects in there, there is still the possibility that you could have bacteria. It's just a matter of time before with all that dirt, especially for people that use like topsoil and peat, there are there is organic debris in there a lot of times that could easily foster some bacterial growth. So Moving ahead, that's something I'm going to be looking at, and I'll probably do. I'm, I'm going to try to get a hold of some people because I have a individual that contacted me. She is a veterinary nurse, and she was doing a paper on DKS. And one of the things she mentioned in DKS is that some of the spiders that they basically did some tests on after they exhibited signs of DKS had uh, traces or some of this bacteria in them. And that caught my eye because I've been thinking a lot about bacteria. A buddy of mine... Ryan Mack and I have talked about the bioactive enclosures, and he even brought up the idea that the bioactive enclosures are better, probably better for the tarantulas because they naturally eliminate some of that waste and debris that you might not notice and help keep bacteria down. So it's starting to get mentioned more and more, and I think a lot of us have had those mysterious deaths where we're like, what happened? We did everything correctly. Who knows? There could have been bacteria in there. So I know this is kind of a long aside, but it is something I'm thinking about as far as my fossorial species. We're doing probably, we're looking at probably a yearly cleaning of taking things out. We'll play it by year. I mean, if I got something that it's really clean, I feel like it's been in good shape. And some of these guys, they're really good about bringing their debris out and I may let it go longer, but it is going to be something that I'm going to look at doing more often. So back to the Chilobrachis, this is a species that you are going to keep moist, which is why I mention it, and they are fossil which is why I mention it. And this is one of those species that you may find yourself dropping in its adult enclosure. You know, some people will move them in because they are burrowers, they're a pain in the butt to rehouse, and they don't want to mess with a large defensive spider. So a lot of people will move them to the adult enclosures when they're like three inches. So this means they could spend quite a few years living out their lives in the same pile of dirt. So something to consider with the fossorials. Again, I'm not trying to, you know, make everybody's life more difficult, but I will say it's something I've given a lot of thought to and that I will start. You know, we've already got a list of ones we're going to start rehousing pretty soon. I've even got a, a couple of Pisolotheria adults that their enclosures are looking a little nasty. I'm like, you know, we'll just swap them out. The heck with it. I mean, it's, it's part of the hobby. We shouldn't be afraid to deal with them. And I think that's the problem with some of these old world species. It's They get the blood pumping. And once we drop them in the adult enclosures, it's like, woof, never have to do that again. But I think that might be erroneous thinking that maybe it sometimes benefits us to make sure we clean them out. 
So as far as eating and temperatures and whatnot, I've kept my Kilo Brocky species. When I got my Guangziensis, the tarantula room would go down to 68 degrees at times. She did perfectly fine. I've heard people say they need to be kept extra warm. Again, if you keep them warmer, you're going to get faster metabolisms and faster growth rates. However, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a, a sick spider or a spider that's not going to grow well or that's going to hurt the spider. They deal with temperatures different than we do. So if it drops a little bit, they might slow down eating. You might get a slower growing spider, but you'll have it for longer. So there you go. Overall, mine grew relatively quickly. They are great eaters, and they're fun to watch eat because when they burst out of that webbing or out of those holes, they really, it's its with a lot of violence, so they're fun to watch. And plus, it can be startling because you don't always see them right away, and then all of a sudden, they burst out, grab the cricket, and immediately retreat back in. So they're very fun to watch. But mine is slings would have no problem taking, you know, I've, I've used the red runner babies, the pinheads, for the really teeny tiny ones, but usually the small crickets are fine. And once they get to be about an inch and a half or so, medium crickets, they take down with no problem. Adults, my larger Guangziensis and Discolus, I drop in three or four large crickets or a large dubia roach at a time, and they have no problem taking those down. Do keep in mind, if you're using the dubia roaches, that dubia love to hide or play dead, which can be kind of a pain in the patukas when you're trying to feed them. So what you want to do is usually I crush the heads before I drop them in. So they'll still wander around a bit, which will attract the attention of the tarantulas. And they can grab them up and they won't hide, which is good. So they grow quickly. Again, I, I think mine went, uh, my species electric blue, I got as little slings are about a quarter inch long. And they're now pushing about two inches. And it's been, oh God, maybe eight months or so. So they're growing fairly quickly. And again, warmer temps lead to faster growth rate, but I'm not trying to rush mine through it. So if your temps are in the, you know, I would say 70s or so, you're going to be fine. Even if it dips down into the high 60s every once in a while, there's no big issue. Don't panic. I don't think you need you know, any extra heat source. Now, for folks that have houses that get a little chillier, and I have a lot of folks over in the UK that... You know, they'll be like, well, the inside of my house right now is like 62. That might, I, I don't know if I'd let them go down that low. I really don't think I would. It, they'd probably be okay, but they're going to slow down quite a bit. So high 60s for a little while, as long as you're going to get some, you know, higher temps in there. And the summer's here in the tarantula room. It gets up to about, this year I kind of leveled it off about 80. It didn't get up much higher than that. We had a couple days where it got to like 84, 85, but that's about it. Usually it was right around 80. So those temps seem, they do well there. So for folks picking up the smaller slings, this is a species where you're going to have some of those adult colors before you know it. I know a lot of the tarantulas out there, especially the slower growing new worlds, you look at these beautiful pictures, you pick up a sling, it's teeny tiny, and you're staring at that same you know drab looking sling for quite a while until they finally put on their adult colors. These guys grow rather quickly overall, as most of my overall fossorials do. Fortunately, if kept correctly, you probably won't see all that much of them, so it can be a little difficult at times to see how big they are for when they need a rehousing. And I've gotten caught a couple times. I remember the worst, I think, ever was my H Gigas. I had two H Gigas. I put them in 16-ounce deli cups when they're only about three-quarters of an inch. They were like swimming in these things. However, they were eating. I would drop things in. I would never see them. They, I was assuming they were eating because I wasn't finding any crickets or roaches around. And it was about, I, I want to say, nine, ten months. And I finally caught one up top, and the thing was like four inches long. I was shocked. So it can be a little difficult at times when keeping the fossorial species, recognizing when they need a rehouse because you don't see them all that often. But again, if you want to catch them out and about, the best time is to sneak down at night with a flashlight. If you can get a red one, even better because it won't startle them. They don't see the red speck 
spectrum of the light and go down, you can kind of get a better idea. And that's what I do now with my phosphor oils. I sneak down a little bit after dark. And honestly, you don't have to wait too, too long because it basically comes down to turn the lights off, wait, you know, 20 minutes, a half hour till they start coming out and then come down and check on them. It's worked for me pretty well, and it gives you a better idea what size it is because I'm telling you, you put it's like planting something in dirt. You don't see it, and then next thing you know it, you've got this monster on your hands in a little deli cup, and that's not good for anybody involved. It makes for some fun rehousing. So, again, there's uh, there are other Kilobrachi species from the ones I have mentioned, and I do plan on trying to get more of them. They are one of my favorites, um, the genera of tarantulas. I really do like them. I mean, again... You have to know what you're getting into with them. They are not going to be out all that much, and that can be a turnoff to some people. But again, I think there's people out there listening to this who have the fossorial species that know what I'm saying with that thrill when you suddenly catch it out and it's put on like two inches of size and looks gorgeous. It makes it all worthwhile. So hopefully people will start checking some of these out. And anybody that's got them, please feel free to comment. I love hearing about everybody else and how their species are kept. If anybody kept them, uh, has them and has kept them on shallow substrate. I'd love to hear about it and how it's going with you. Uh, Temperament-wise, before we end this one, uh, mine have all been very, very well behaved. They're fast. They're a little bit skittish. They don't want to be caught out and about. If I pop open their containers and I do catch them out, they usually scramble right to whatever the nearest burrow entrance is. I haven't had any defensive behavior from any of mine but again i give them that room to dig so i've yet to see one throw a threat pose nor do i want to see one throw a threat pose but again i'm sure there are folks out there that have them that have had different situations and it's important to note that although mine may be behaving that doesn't mean everybody's are going to behave and i always want to make that very clear because i think sometimes it comes across like i'm minimizing the how bad these some of these species can be or how defensive they can be and it's not that at all for me it's just sometimes I don't get a lot of these defensive behaviors so when I'm speaking about temperaments I can only comment on mine and I recognize that that's just an incredibly small sample of the overall behavior of the spider so anybody that wants to chime in and say what they think about theirs I'd love to hear it. So that will about do it for this episode. Uh, hopefully some folks find these notes helpful. Obviously, if there are any questions, please feel free to ask. I will be rehousing my female Guangxiensis fairly you know, fairly soon. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to put her in for the next enclosure because the sterilite container I have her in, I, I no longer like to use for fossorial. They just don't look very nice. I want to get her to something a bit prettier, but we'll see. I'm leaning toward probably an extra-large critter keeper, but we'll play it by ear. So anyway, please let me know if anybody that keeps them, let me know. I'd love to see pictures of them. It'd be cool to get a little gallery going under this on Facebook to see what other people's look like when you've caught them out. I'll try to get some pictures of mine up as well. I'm trying desperately trying to get pictures of the species Electric Blue, but they're... uh, not quite posing for the camera. They're a bit shy. So that'll do it for this one. As usual, if you'd like to catch some videos, I have a YouTube channel. I think the majority of people on here probably know about the YouTube channel and probably found this from the YouTube channel, but I say it anyway. And then, of course, there's the Tom's Big Spiders website. And again, we are doing that push. I forgot to mention this, to try to get vendors from state by state. And the response so far has been fantastic. I have started compiling the list. I'm trying to figure out a way to present it as an aesthetically pleasing manner as possible. Um, I have some ideas and may just put something up in the meantime to make sure we have something up there, but I may play with it afterwards because I've, I've had this idea of a map that you can click on, but I have to see if I can pull it off, and I don't know if I'm up to speed as far as programming and whatnot, but we'll see. I'm, I'm trying to do something nice with it. But again, if you know of dealers in your state that are reputable, that have good reputations, um, I believe that's redundant, but oh well, please let me know. Go to my website, TomsBigSpires.com. 
Tom. The last post I have is the call out for dealers and, and leave me a comment. I have read them all and I want to thank everybody. I will go and personally say thank you to everybody in the comment section. It's just been a lot of people and I haven't had the chance yet. And uh, that's about it. I think I'm on Instagram, but I haven't posted in a while, so we'll leave that off for the time being. So as usual, thanks so much for listening. Um, I've kept my streak alive. I think this is 35 weeks in a row. I've managed to keep uh, get a podcast going. I was a little worried at first, but we, we now have this thing in the house where Billy will go shopping, which gives me the time to do my podcast. So she's out shopping right now. I'm sitting here in front of the computer like a loaf doing my podcast. So a big thanks to Billy for giving me the time because I have a hard time concentrating when everything's going on around me. And I feel like a dork sitting here talking to a microphone by myself. So appreciate it, hon. And uh, so that'll about do it for this one. Um, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time.